It's Friday, July 9th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. Captain? General Petraeus, come in, sir. Thank uh, you. Did you have any trouble finding your way around Walter Reed? No, no, no. I know this hospital. Half the men I commanded are right here. Uh, oh, excuse me, sir. Sergeant, I thought I made it clear I can't be disturbed. Who? Yeah, I've seen the bald bastard on TV. What? No. No, tell him he can't have a piece of him. That was Dr. Phil. He wants to come over and join us. Who does he think I am, Britney Spears? Well, you're just about as famous now, General. CNN is running your feigning spell alongside Marie Osmond's similar episode on Dancing with the Stars. I didn't faint. I was uh, taking what we call in Iraq a ten-click nap. Keeps you rested, on your toes. Nevertheless, sir, the Pentagon has requested that uh, after your uh, medical incident on Capitol Hill that you get a complete physical. Uh, Just put this thermometer in your ear. Uh, It won't be necessary, Captain. I have a Vitestats implant. Uh, See, right here, you just touch the screen right there. Blood pressure, 120 over 64. Tip, 98.8. Estimated lifespan. Yeah, look at that. So, uh, good. We can mm. move right on to the psychological evaluation. Yeah, now, sure, sure, when yeah. you appeared to faint in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee, was uh-huh. that in any way connected with the fact that you were being questioned by Senator John McCain? Uh, hell no. I can have that Navy brat for dinner. Well, perhaps it was the line of questioning then, <laughs> sir. I mean, you were being grilled about the timetable for U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh-huh. Captain. When that shitstorm comes, I'm standing behind the president. Well, yes, sir. Right no. behind him. Well, let's just take a Completely look at the stop him. I'm be action video him. of the Senate proceedings, okay? Okay. Let's just take a look. See? Watch, sir. As they get, begin uh-huh. to talk about the record number of American deaths, your shoulders start to slump. Well, there's big numbers. Yeah. Here, when, uh, when they bring up the brutality of the Taliban and the warlords, your head starts to droop. Now I've been awake for Now, notice how the blood seems to drain out of your face when they call the war unwinnable. Uh, I, uh, General! Uh, General! Wake up! Uh, nurse! Nurse, get me 40 cc's of fratricide stat! Can't face it. Yeah, Radio Free Oz on the web, coming to you from RadioFreeOz.com. And the web means, David, we get everywhere uh, at the same time. Oh, I should introduce myself. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, our co-host, David Oz. But it's not the same time everywhere, Pete. Well, it may not be the same time, but it's the same place wherever you are. And the reason I mentioned it is... Is that existential or Buddhist? I've I, lost in your... Uh, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, okay, man. Go I'm, ahead. Just, I'm just trying to make an irrelevant point here, right. which is that we reach everywhere. We probably have listeners in Malaysia. I know that when we go up to Facebook, there are people from like all over the, the world with all sorts of unusual ethnic names, speaking languages I don't recognize, who are fans of Radio Free Oz. Well, in Malaysia, they don't just get Radio Free Oz. They have their new American Idol Malaysian form, okay? And it's called Young Imam. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Ten good-looking male contestants in sharp-looking suits are assigned to sing and com- compete, uh, complete a series of complex tasks. At the end of the show, the studio lights dim, the music drops to a whisper, and a clutch of young hopefuls step forward nervously, waiting hand-in-hand to find out who will be sent home that night. And instead of a record contract or a million-dollar prize, though, the last imam standing wins a scholarship to the Al-Madina University in Saudi Arabia, a job leading prayers at the Kuala Lumpur Mosque, and an expense-paid trip to Mecca to perform the Hajj pilgrimage. Boy, that's a big prize. Now, wait a minute. Now, what kind of stunts do they perform well, here? I'm glad you asked. Yes. The sole judge who decides who stays and goes, you know, <clears throat> uh, each, each week uh, isn't an aging pop star or talk show host, like oh, we'd use, of yeah, course. Right, that, that's of course. Our, our format. He's the turban-wearing former Grand Mufti of Malaysia's National Mosque, Hassan Mahmoud. <laughs> and the here lights he come comes up. now. Lights come up. Okay. La- last week, Mr. <laughs> Hassan stifled a sob as he eliminated 25-year-old Sarafuddin Suat from the show for stumbling over some of the finer points of Islamic history. Oh, Ooh, oh, Sarafan, why you, come on. Fans sign onto Facebook to heap praise on the aspiring young mullahs, including some prospective mother-in-laws, hoping to marry off their daughters, some viewers say they have been inspired to take another look at their faith. I don't know from which direction. Hmm. Okay. Others simply appear to be smitten. I like, 
I'd vote for you. Hi, hi, hi. One person identifying herself as Noor Anatul Fitria wrote one of the contestants, 22-year-old Hazam Kamal of the show's fan book on the page. You know, yeah, So obviously yeah. she's writing in English. Yeah. Know, it truly is a second language. It's easy to see how the young imams, this is from the Wall Street Journals. This, this has got to be the truth. Uh, it's the real thing. They might, it, it's easy to see how the young imams might send Malaysian teens a flutter dressed in matching robes or suits. That gets me right off the bat. Much like a Western-style all-boy pop group, they are selected for the contest after months of rigorous auditions. Months! Because they have time there, Dave. They have time to do anything. Most caught in the, uh, the producer's ear with the quality of their voices while reciting verses from the Quran. Some are still students while others work in businesses and financial services. The show's organizers then test the contestants on general knowledge and geography to make sure they're up to the intellectual rigors of the show. They have to be able to speak on a wide range of social issues. We made them talk about all kinds of things like the environment and UFOs. Oh, well, I'm sure that I didn't, I didn't know that was a big thing in Imam land. Yeah, well, you know, know the Quran, right? And no, but know the environment a, yep. and be hip to those aliens. Hip to the aliens. So, so each year, young okay. Imam, each week, young, young Imam goes out of its way to confront the contestants with situations they might face one day as real Imams, right? In the first episode, the young contenders were sent out to prepare unclaimed corpses for burial. And it's... Right in Islam. Oh. Yeah, this is a big show. Can you imagine? Like, it's so much like American Idol. I just, I, I, Kelly, I, I, Kelly Clarkson won because she knew how to wrap them corpses. Well, it's going out and finding one it, it first. Gets, I it, mean, yes. it gets weirder. okay. In another okay. show, the contestants right. ditched their suits and black Muslim caps to don sports shirts to head out with the police on a midnight raid on a gang of teenage motorcycle street racers in the southern town of Johobaru. The young imams none of them much older than the street racers, herded the bikers into a room and tried to wean them off their racing fix by lecturing them f- about Islam. So you're uh-huh. rapping bodies one day and you're rapping to street kids, you know, I the think, next. I, I think uh, a young, Im- dancing with the young imams, my, there's that a spinoff. I'm looking for the spinoffs here. <laughs> Uh, uh, young imams of New Jersey. I like Perhaps that. you think that has a little bit of style. To Anything that like, you know, your imam is my imam, you know, um, dooby-doo. The Economist is one of the most respected uh, magazines on the globe. It's conservative. It's careful. You might even say it's generally moderate. And they think twice before they take on American foreign policy. But here's a piece from the recent Economist. Mr. Obama has every reason to cashier General McChrystal. Officers, including his predecessor, have gone for less. Not to act would have left the president looking weak, and yet it was a heavy price to pay. Nothing could cheer the Taliban more than seeing General McChrystal out on his ear. He's a master of counterinsurgency, nicknamed COIN, C-O-I-N. He was one of the few Americans who could work with President Hamid Karzai, and his hand-picked commanding officers are in charge of a forthcoming operation in Kandahar that will probably determine the course of the campaign. To Mr. Obama's credit, his place has been filled by General David Petraeus, the fainting general, the star of the war in Iraq, and the man who wrote the manual on coin. Even so, the dismissal leaves America's campaign pitched on the edge of failure. They use the word failure. This is a terrible moment for the generals to fall out with the politicians. In June, Afghanistan surpassed Vietnam to become, by some measures, the longest campaign in America's history for which, besides clearing out the Taliban camps initially, has done nothing. More than 1,000 of its men and women have been killed and almost 6,000 injured. Yet the Taliban are rampant, assassinating tribal leaders and intimidating their people. A survey in 120 districts racked by insurgency, a third of the Afghanistan's total found little popular support for Mr. Karzai. Over a third of their inhabitants backed the insurgents. One out of three Afghanis supports the insurgents? This is out of the question. Since November, when Mr. Obama promised 30,000 more of his country's soldiers to the campaign, little has gone right. General McChrystal's plan was for a surge that would seize the initiative from the Taliban and create the scope for Afghanistan's government, backed by its army and police, to take charge. Something, of course, they have never done. In practice, that has not happened. 
Marja, farming district in Helmand, was supposed to show how coin would win over the people and send the Taliban packing. General McChrystal himself now calls Marja a bleeding ulcer. thing I liked about McChrystal, I'm not that fond of Delta Force generals, and, you know, he is a hard-cut, steely blue-eye guy. He actually has little or no political smarts, so he calls him as he sees him. Yes, Marja is a bleeding ulcer. Mr. Karzai's supposedly corrupt half-brother, supposedly, <laughs> was meant to go, but he remains in charge of Kandahar. Fanciful Pentagon talk of Afghanistan's huge mineral wealth smacks of desperation. Isn't that interesting? Because I was reading like things in the Huff Post and places like that that says this is their salvation. Well, the uh, economist, which is, I think, a little even deeper than the Huff and Puff, says that it smacks of desperation. America has perhaps until the end of the year to show that coin can work. We're so much not at stake, it would be tempting to give up and call the troops home. Yet, although Western leaders have done a poor job of explaining the war in Afghanistan to their voters, a defeat there would be a disaster. There's the D words, defeat and disaster. The narrow aim of denying Al-Qaeda a haven, already frustrated by the terrorist scope to lodge in unruly parts of northern Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, would become impossible to achieve. A Western withdrawal would leave Afghanistan vulnerable to a civil war that might suck in the local powers, including Iran, Pakistan, India, and Russia. Sooner or later, the poison would end up harming America, too. But wait a minute. Really? I mean, the the Taliban, a bunch of, now turns out to be assassinating thugs who comes out, come out of the madrasas, you know, carrying holy books and making sure that nobody's flying kites with pages of the Quran. Now there's thinking. That takes some real vigilance. Yeah, they helped uh, Osama bin Laden, a real smart guy who used box cutters to bring down the Twin Towers. I mean, basically, that's the level of their, you know, uh, shall we say, mechanical sophistication. We blew them up, right? We blew them up. And then we came back to do what? Basically, to serve the purposes of the Pakistani intelligence that's been running us and the CIA for ever so long, because their intent, indeed, is to rule Afghanistan. And sooner or later, we will leave. And it isn't a matter of Russia coming in. That's the last thing they want. Last time they were in Afghanistan was not such a happy ending. India doesn't want to go anywhere near Afghanistan. Iran, I mean, come on. Iran's got its own problems, and it's got oil, and they're smart. They're Persians. They're educated. No, it's Pakistan that will take over. Pakistan, the people with the bomb. Wingnuts with the bomb. One of the nice things about being in a an election year, it seems that every year is an election year, by the way. I mean, you know, we're always talking. People are always running for something. You get you get a chance to really get into some very interesting characters, like our certifiable senatorial candidate in Kentucky, Rand Paul. Now, he wants to build a fence along the U.S. border. Nothing unusual in that, is there, David? No, no. Senator Dang tried, fence yeah. is right with him. Yep. Yeah, that, that's how, except that Paul wants the fence to be electric, and he wants it built underground. Wait a minute. A fence underground? Yeah. I yeah. don't. I, I have a. a well, you know the way people weirdness. are training dogs now where they put those special collars on them, and if they go past a certain place, there's wires they underground. They electrocute the dog. They electrocute over the dog. Yeah, so yeah, I guess right. he wants to put collars on potential illegal aliens, undocumented people. Nice collars, probably, you know, mm-hmm. with a little style. He's, he dresses well, kind of. And then if they try to come across the border, oh, que lastima, and they go back home. Uh-huh. Right, How so. do you get the collars on the Mexicans? Hold on. Okay. Among the variety of proposals to stem illegal immigrants, uh, the construction of an underground electric fence appears to stand alone on the extreme. I think that Huff is being kind here. There is little... Contemporary evidence of other Republican officials proposing such a project, even among the most conservative of the bunch, indeed, when approached in the halls of the Senate and asked about the idea, though not told who proposed it, National Republican Senate Committee Chair John Cornyn, they don't come any right winger than him, assumed it was a joke. Well, you know what? It is a joke. So in a speech in downtown Paducah, Kentucky, Paul pegged the cost of his quixotic idea at somewhere between 10 and $15 million. That's cheap. That's small change. Yeah. The benefits of an underground fence, he argued, were that it would not have the symbolism of a Berlin Wall-like structure and it would be considered less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. 
less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. I don't get where this man's coming from. No, he I... isn't paying his syntax. You've heard how terrorists plan to have babies born in the United States, then sent abroad to be trained and coddled into terrorists, only to return 20 to 30 years later to destroy our way of life. Well, you don't have to wait 20 or 30 years to enjoy the over-the-border taste of Anchor Baby Beer. Our secret? It's a foreign yeast that's been brought over to America, coddled and fermented until it wakes up to the call of action. Hey, it won't destroy your way of life, only your taste for any other brew than Anchor Baby Beer. Anchor Baby, a product of Blackout Brewery's Oath Keeper, Nevada, now legal in 38 states. Another example, you know, between the vast gap between Senator Byrd, the former Senator Byrd, whom we love dearly and was a great orator and a great intellectual, and what's sitting in the House of Representatives now. Okay, Representative Sue Myrick, a Republican, no surprise, of North Carolina, is pressing uh, Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano for more surveillance of Hezbollah operations along the U.S.-Mexico border. You might ask why, Dave. Uh, I'm I'm speechless, but okay, why? (laughs) Quote, former intelligence officials, maybe this is like Gohmert's uh, uh, retired FBI guy. Mm -hmm. It's always former. Former former intelligence officials have pointed to the terrain that makes up our border, especially in the San Diego border sector, as a reason why drug cartels have been partnering with Hezbollah. This terrain is very much like the areas around Israel's borders, and as well, Hezbollah is extremely skilled in the construction of tunnels. Oh, of course. Uh, uh, why, yes. Um, so why is Hezbollah doing this just because they have, like... Is, well, it's like sorry, home. Like, well, like hiring, you know, uh, somebody that knows how to, you know, mine for gold. They come over and they teach you how to mine for gold. This is, like, but digging tunnels is... Digging tunnels the, and bringing drugs in and doing, something, and doing something bad because that's what Hezbollah is around for. Oh, boy. Well, get thee to Gaza. I gotta love Sharon Angle. I do. I, in many ways, I love her more than Sarah Palin because she's even nuttier, and she's from Nevada, which is a state that grows nuts. Uh, you know, and she is a perfect example, a constant reminder to me about how serious things have become. As ridiculous as she is, she is running not in, as some you know splinter party candidate, but as the representative of the GOP, Lincoln's party. Okay, the far-right third party that Nevada GOP Senate candidate Sharon Angle called home in the 1990s supported abolishing the debt money system and ran a vitriolic anti-gay insert in state newspapers that portrays lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transvestite people or transgender people, or as Angle's party calls them, sodomites, as child-molesting, HIV-carrying, hell-bound freaks. Wow, they really don't like them. In 1992, Angle signed and circulated a petition that was part of a successful push to get the Independent American Party on the ballot. It features the Independent American Manifesto, including the acknowledgement that many Americans have ignored the laws of God, and supports a proposed constitutional amendment called the Liberty Amendment, which would compel the federal government to hold its unconstitutional programs and wasteful expenditures such as foreign aid and welfare corruption. That's good. That's a good amendment. That would really throw a monkey wrench in the machine. It will prohibit the financing of the New World Order. I love the New World Order. You know what the problem is, is that, you see, these teabaggers are, are nuts, but crazy people are are somehow prescient they can see into the future through their cracked minds yes the new world order is coming we will at some day give over our war making powers or much of it to the united nations yeah that's where it's going in order to save the planet it's a long way off and i can hear people listening to this broadcast going oh no and spinning in their graves and throwing up or whatever but that's where it's going it's going to go there incrementally but they on the far right you know probably you know sipping their cups of belladonna see it 
They see it in colors that I can't imagine, but they see it and they know what's coming and they're right. So the Liberty Amendment will prohibit the financing of the New World Order with American taxes, eliminate the debt money system and restore constitutional money to the people, whatever that is. Abolish the Marxist graduated income tax. See, there's two There's two income taxes. There's the Marxist graduated income tax and then there's Steve, Steve Forbes flat tax which is about as flat as his perspective. And it will get rid of the fearful IRS, transfer public lands in the West to state ownership. Mm. And it will restore freedom and prosperity to America. Sounds good to me. Sample headlines include homosexual curriculum in the first grade. Flawed science nurtures genetic origin for homosexuality. No constitutional right to be a sodomite. It's true. I went through the Constitution this morning and I could find no mention of the right to be a sodomite. There's nothing in there that gives you the right to be a homophobe either. Independent American Party supporters could buy homophobia, no, homonausea, yes, bumper stickers, for the special low price of $1. Now we're getting into Mike Huckabee land, remember? Mike, the ick factor Huckabee. So these people are a lot closer than we would imagine. Maybe Mike should become the front runner for what do they call it? The uh, American Independent Party, you know, because he's never going to be nominated for the GOP because he's just too much of a smiling, good loving, homophobic hick. So why do I always return to Sarah Palin and why even give this ignorant, opportunistic quitter the time of day? Self-abuse. Could be, maybe it's because it's, it's just, it's because chronicling this fascist beauty queen is a reminder that she could have been one faulty heartbeat away from the Oval Office, shudder, shudder. Burr. Let's start with Palin the Crook, Dave. Okay. Okay. Palin the Crook. Palin the Crook. Mm -hmm. A legal defense fund set up by Miss Sarah when she was the Alaska governor, you know, was illegal an investigator of the state personal board has announced. Okay, personnel board. Investigator Timothy uh, Perumenos said the Alaska Fund Trust inappropriately used the word official on its website to describe it, wrongly implying Palin's endorsement as governor. Palin's attorney, Thomas Van Flein, said she will return the money from the fund, which brought in $390,000. So that's $390,000 on a mama grizzly's pocket, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thursday's findings are an outgrowth from a preliminary confidential report by another board investigator that also implicated Palin. The early report was issued less than two weeks after she announced she was resigning from office. Get out while you can, Sarah. What's an oath of office when the sheriff is hot on your trail and there's all those millions to be made on the lecture circuit? You know, they, they just love this woman and she's a full-out quitter. In another complaint, also investigated by uh, Pedomenos, Palin agreed to reimburse the state about $8,000 for costs associated with nine trips taken by her children. Guess you're going to have to pay for those family values after all, I Mama guess so. G. And the family values meals, too. Absolutely. <laughs> and who says Sarah doesn't read? She recently encouraged her supporters to read an article comparing the BP escrow fund to Nazism. The article says that like Adolf Hitler, President Barack Obama is stripping away the freedom of the citizens without mass protest. I'm glad to know that she knows who Adolf Hitler is. That's a, that's, that's a plus probably for she her. Probably yeah. thinks he's a designer. <laughs> when Adolf Hitler, this is from the article, was building up the Nazi movement in the 1920s, leading up to his taking power in the 30s, he deliberately sought to activate people who did not normally pay much attention to politics. It goes on to compare the American public on under Obama to the useful idiots who followed Lenin's creation of the Soviet Union. Does that make Sarah wait, wait, then? Wait, wait, wait a minute. We just jumped from the Nazis to the communists. I know. Well, she's, she's all, well, this article that she, she you know, she's the Oprah of the extreme right. You know, yeah. You've got to read this article. It's about the, the great designer Adolf Hitler and about uh, useful idiots. Well, if she's the opposite of Lenin, does that make her a useless idiot? I'm not sure. And finally, the good news. It appears that Sarah can't fool all the people all the time. Greg Sargent, the Washington Post, I like him a lot, reveals how toxic she's become among the broader electorate. See, we read about her all the time and all these people that pay huge amounts of money to see her be cute. In fact, buried in the internals of the new NBC Wall Street Journal poll is an amusing number. A majority see Palin's endorsement as a clear negative. Asked how they feel if a candidate were endorsed by Sarah Palin, here's the response. Enthusiastic, 8%. 
<laughs> comfortable, 17%. Have some reservations about this, 15%. Very uncomfortable, 37%. So a majority, 52% are negative on her. And, and, and astonishing, he thinks 37% are uncomfortable with the idea of a Palin endorsement. So, and there are, and they, in this poll, there are only two other attributes a candidate might have that were seen as worse than a Palin endorsement. Supporting Bush's economic policies and supporting the elimination of various federal agencies and or social security. You have to go, you have to be that stupid, right, to be even more toxic than Sarah Palin. I'm on the phone with Liz Woodruff. She's in Boise, Idaho, and she's with Think Outside the Bomb. Hi, Liz. How you doing? I'm great, thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Think Outside the Bomb and how you're, you know, what what you're doing to energize the grassroots on this really important problem, i.e., the fate of the world. Okay, so let, let's talk about that. Right. Well, Think Outside the Bomb is the largest youth-led uh, network for abolition in the United States, um, and we are organizing an event called Disarmament Summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that will be taking place in New Mexico, July 30th through August 10th. And this is really an effort to bring young people and the young at heart um, across the United States and globally and get them to look at what's going on with the weapons complex um, in this country around uh, the nuclear industrial complex. Where is that taking place in, in New Mexico? Um, very near Los Alamos National Lab. Uh-huh. So we're going to be building a permaculture encampment just outside of Los Alamos in Chimayo. Um, And we will be um, organizing um, actions associated with Los Alamos Lab uh, with the members of the surrounding community um, throughout uh, that time period from July 30th through August 10th. What exactly will a permaculture camp look like? Um, Well, what we're trying to do is uh, kind of build uh, the future the way we want to see it rather Mm -hmm. than the way the lab is um, portraying our only possibilities. And so the permaculture encampment is going to take place at um, what is currently a youth camp. Mm-hmm. And the um, space has been generously donated by some local allies there for the encampment. Mm-hmm. And we have people on the ground right now. Uh, about six organizers have relocated to New Mexico and have started building um, kind of sustainable structures there, um, gray water systems, um, composting components, um, some growing of agriculture. And the idea is to, you know, increase the vitality of this already vibrant youth camp, um, but give it uh, a permaculture component so that even when uh, our encampment leaves and we're done with our actions this summer, there is kind of a new invigorated space for young people in the community to go to. That's a great idea. I mean, you just don't leave and all they have to do is kind of wrap up the trash and wait for somebody else to show up. You're going to leave something. And and there is a real, you know, uh, what do you call it, a contradiction between Los Alamos and the nuclear triggers and all the bombs and this permaculture camp, which has to do with sustaining and living and growing, right? It's the opposite of death. It's the antidote, right? Um, That's right. You know, we really, I think you've said that really well. We do think that the nuclear industrial complex is a complex of destruction. Um, It is uh, centered on fear and using this notion of security in order to justify billions of dollars going to weapons of mass destruction and the refurbishment of nuclear weapons. Um, As you might know, throughout the complex, we are seeing increased resources going to bomb-making components, to the non-nuclear components of weapons in Kansas City, um, and to increased enrichment capacity in Oak Ridge. And so throughout the complex, even though uh, Obama got a Nobel Peace Prize for envisioning a nuclear-free future, what's really occurring is a huge investment in the billions of dollars for new nuclear weapons construction. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, When you say that, the, the, the think outside the bomb is youth-led. Uh, what is the structure like, and, and you know who runs it, and how, why would we be able to describe this as a youth-run organization? Well, we're actually not uh, technically an organization um, in the sense of like a nonprofit is. Mm-hmm. So what we are is a network, and um, that gives us a lot of freedom. Um, to operate without hierarchies and through consensus-based decision-making. Think Outside the Bomb was originally affiliated with um, an anti-nuclear organization uh, when it first started about six years ago and held youth conferences all over the United States, sort of reaching the heart of the nuclear industrial complex. So there were um, conferences held in California at different parts of the UC system. There was one held at MIT. There's been one held in D.C., 
Uh, and that was all really an opportunity to share resources, uh, give skills, invigorate young people. And then last year, we went to New Mexico, and we held our conference there. And in doing that, we realized that it was now time to act. Um, it's the 65th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki coming up this year. Yeah. And with these huge investments in nuclear weapons, we just decided it was time to use our network ability, our dispersed efforts, and come together to really make change. Well, I like that. And, and, and how does one uh, get in touch with the organization? How does one make plans to show up? Well, what, what, what do you need? Well, you can go online to www.thinkoutsidethebomb.org. Mm-hmm. And um, there you can see that there is registration information right over in the left-hand column. You'll see it says register for camp. Um, there's an opportunity to endorse people. There's an opportunity to get people more interconnected with our network. We have lots of resources there and contact information. And, of course, there's also a Donate Now button. Um, so we really want people to come down to the encampment July 30th through August 10th. And people don't have to come for the whole time. They can come for like a four-day period, really hoping that they'll show up for August 6th on our day of action, but any period of time that they can make it. But even if they can't come, um, we really encourage people to give um, in whatever way they can to support the encampment and support our work. You know, if I'm not incorrect, Chamayo is a place, there's a famous healing, miracle healing church there. And that's the place where the penitentes would come, the guys that carry the crosses on their shoulders halfway across uh, New Mexico to come to this place. I visited once, and there's it's like Lourdes, New Mexico style. There's crutches and things like that hanging on the fences, and it's, it's this famous healing dirt. So I think you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, uh, we'll talk to you again after the conference and see how it went, Liz, okay? Okay, thank you so much for your interest and your support. Thank you also for doing what you're doing. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. The Further Adventures of Cardinal Teflon. Talking here, of course, of Cardinal Roger Mahoney, who soon will be retiring as the Red Hat from Los Angeles. In fact, they've already got a tomb for him with his name on it in the crypt. And I think it would be a good idea if he crept in there as soon as possible because things are getting hot. 20-year-old college student, according to USA Today, was working as a youth minister with the Archdiocese of Los Angeles when he revealed a long-buried secret to church authorities. He'd been molested by a priest for several years. It began when the cleric was first a youth minister and then a seminarian. The young man met with church officials who promised the priest that this man, who had been abusing him, would never work around children again. Sounds good, huh? Sixteen years later, the man, now a father of two, typed the Reverend Jeffrey Newell's name into a computer and was stunned by the results. Newell was still a priest, serving the Diocese of Tijuana. His MySpace page lists a half-dozen teenage boys as his friends and includes pictures of Newell in his priest's collar. Uh-oh! Bells are going off and they're church bells! That discovery led to a lawsuit filed against the Los Angeles Archdiocese alleging that church leaders, and of course that includes uh, Teflon Cardinal, engaged in fraud and negligence by allowing Newell to continue serving as a priest long after his alleged crimes were reported. Now, now, this is not a criminal abuse case. This is negligence and fraud. The lawsuit is a second to be filed in California in recent months that uses fraud and not molestation or sexual battery as the basis for litigation over alleged sex abuse. And more are expected. Dozens are already working their way through the legal system in several other states, including 20 fraud cases in Minnesota in the past year. Suing for fraud could be another avenue for California clergy sex abuse victims who failed to take advantage of a one-year grace period that allowed them to sue after the deadline for a lawsuit had expired. So I guess that's the church's idea of grace, (laughs) a one-year grace period, so you can sue them for abusing you. Newell was ordained in 1990, a year before the alleged victim reported the abuse, and removed from the Los Angeles Archdiocese in 1993, Mahoney in charge, for unrelated reasons. Really, Newell was removed for, quote, not complying with a treatment program for personal issues, including obesity and alcohol. So he was just a fat drunk. That's why they got rid of him? I don't think so. And engaging in sexual misconduct with an adult. 
and that adult's gender, please. Newell, 48, now ministers in a working-class neighborhood in Tijuana and holds a daily evening mass with drums and electric bass that is broadcast live through the parish website. I'd like to hear some of his songs. Young parishioners interviewed there said, said they think highly of Padre Jeff, who runs a teen community group every week, holds a radio show for Catholic teens, and takes groups of children on sleepovers to a church-owned ranch. Oy, oy, oy. Warm it up. Right now, humanity isn't a hot item. Some will say it's in the freezer. I'll say it's in the refrigerator. And everyone that I know is trying to get it over to the stove. Warm it up, not on a high flame, because we don't want to burn the bottom. This is Gary Buzzcut, Tea Party candidate for Senator. Between my well-paid clandestine missions, people, some of them probably Russian spies, ask me why should I vote for a former CIA op. Here's why. Because I'm a trained, professional American asshole. I get off on danger, violence, and covert action. 
I've paid off warlords and defused roadside bombs. I've told them we should execute the Guantanamo guys, and I know from personal experience that torture works very, very well. I had Bin Laden trapped in his cave, but the general wouldn't send in the rangers, the shitbag. So if you want a blunt, confrontational, aggressive commando with an addiction to adrenaline down in Washington, get out the vote for me, Gary Buzzcut. I'm no cartoon hero. <laughs> and I've got nothing to lose. Paid for by the Committee for a Compassion-Free America. I'm Gary Buzzcut, and I've okayed this mission. Sheriff Axehandle is with us today. I brought him in because I want his take on something that Arizona Governor Jan Brewer said. She claimed recently, Sheriff, yeah. that uh, law enforcement has been finding beheaded bodies in the desert. Uh, that these are this this is proof that the uh, illegal yes. aliens are working with the Mexican mafia because that's what they do to people who cross them. I'm not talking about crossing the border. I mean, you know, double crossing them and such. Because of course, she said they were drug mules before, and that turned out not to be true. So, what do you think about this? Well, what's happening? I'm man? completely confused by your story, Mr. Bergman. Well, that's uh, a good in the start. first place, if you find some heads without yeah. some bodies to them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I know that over in uh, Afghanistan, yeah. they find heads when people blow themselves up. They find their heads. Now, and nothing more. Nothing more, just them heads. So I think perhaps we could be looking at some exploded bodies here. That they could be, uh, uh, they could be, uh, uh, you know, those criminal bombers who go into places and blow them up. Except there's no places down there in Arizona to blow up. Well, maybe, maybe this they're the victims of that uh, underground electrified fence that Rand Paul wants to put in. Maybe they stepped over the wrong fence at the wrong time and blew themselves to kingdom come. Of course, um, getting to America's kingdom come for them. Well, okay. Uh, well, I, now you didn't ask me whether this had anything to do with crime circles. No, I didn't because that never came to mind. But what does it, if anything, have to do with crop circles? I can't figure it out, Mr. Bergman, but I know in there somewhere there's crop circles. I just feel it. I feel it in my bones. And besides that, they could have taken these bodies away for investigating their internal organs out there in outer space. Don't have time to do the crop circles. Anyway, what? I don't, don't know you why you called me in on this, because I'm not an expert on heads, man. I just don't know what to say about it. It kind of makes me feel comfortable, you know, heads. Excuse me. I, I got to go. On the phone with me is uh, David Bloom. He's an uh, energy expert, the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas, and the founder of Bloom Distillation, and um, what he does, amongst other things, is bring ethanol to your local car. How good, good to have you on the phone, David. How you doing? I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, t now I, you know, I grew up without any ethanol in my life, and yet I hear it's a, it's it's a it's a well, that's a real pity. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> put more put more corn in my genes. So it works. Uh, tell me how ethanol works as a substitute for oil, and then let me know why uh, it hasn't been popular from the get go. Okay. Well, from the get go, it has been popular. Alcohol was the first auto fuel before gasoline was ever invented. Really? I mean, it wasn't like there was a pool of gasoline sitting around and someone said, "Gosh, wish we had an engine that had run on that." Uh -huh. But uh, alcohol was first, and uh, the Model T. Uh, actually was an alcohol vehicle that could also run on gasoline. So it was the world's first flex fuel vehicle. And, of course, it's taken 100 years to come back around to a place now where our, our cars are now being made on the assembly line to run on both alcohol and gasoline. But you almost never hear about it, even though we've been doing it since 94. And that's basically because alcohol uh, it's not real popular with oil companies and therefore not popular with the people they hire to defend their interests, our well, Congress people. Yeah, let me ask so, you something. Uh, I mean, I could just put pure ethanol in my tank in my car and it, it would run. It would be fine. Well, it, uh, you can at least go 50% with mm -hmm. a modern car, and many cars can go to 100% because fuel injection systems mm -hmm. are pretty smart and they're run by a computer that can adjust for a wide variety of conditions. But uh, with us uh, on the assembly line in Detroit, it's only fifty dollars of different uh, materials, basically a little bit smarter computer to make the difference between alcohol and gas. Or you can buy a computer aftermarket to run on a hundred percent alcohol. But today, you could go ahead and put in half a tank alcohol, and your car will run just fine. Okay, now this doesn't apply to diesels, right? This is gasoline engines. 
Right. Actually, alcohol can run diesel engines also. Uh, you know, the first diesel engines actually did run on combinations of alcohol and vegetable oil, and Dr. Diesel had uh, both versions. So we can actually run not only our cars, but our diesel uh, trucks. We can run our turbines that we use to make electricity, and we can even cook uh, and make uh, hot water with alcohol. Uh, as we demonstrate with fuel oil burners. Well, okay, so uh, ha has there been an actual, I hate to use the word conspiracy because it's a dangerous word nowadays, has there been a concerted effort to keep al uh, to keep ethanol off the market as a fuel substitute or, or, or flex uh, a fuel w with, with oil? Well, I got to tell you, the oil companies are really good at uh, spreading money around and having allies. The first real conspiracy against alcohol fuel was done back in the uh, early 19-teens when uh, basically the oil companies uh, gave a little old ladies group $4 million and they went out and bought Congress and passed Prohibition. Everybody thought that was about drinking, but as far as uh, Rockefeller was concerned, it was all about getting rid of the competition, which, you know, I'll call it half the market at the time. So hmm. it's all very well documented that uh, the first alcohol conspiracy was... Uh, was between with uh, Rockefeller and the Women's Christian Temperance Movement to get rid of demon rum and therefore Rockefeller's competition. Yeah, as W.C. Fields would say, Lompoc. Yes, that's where the WCTU was was centered. Well, then there's two conspiracies because it was the uh, the people that got rid of hemp weren't worried about smoking weed; they're worried about it as a competition for paper. So yeah, you oh, got well, and, and for synthetic fiber. And if you take a look at it, the Duponts were very involved in the hemp thing. This is the second time that they tried to take a product, demonize it as a drug, and then get it prohibited. Alcohol was first. The same play playbook was used a couple of decades later with hemp. F absolutely fascinating. So let me, uh, this, this is great. We're going to come back the next time we talk with you, David. We're going to talk about what is the, what's the carbon footprint of ethanol? You know, in other words, nothing is made without some use of resources, without, you know, with, without some sort of backlash. And we'll find out about that when we talk with David Bloom next time. Thanks a lot. PBS NewsHour's Bridget Desimore and Betty Ann Bowser, woof woof, have struggled to overcome access to a, quote, federal mobile medical unit in Venice, Louisiana. They say the glorified double-wide trailer sits on a spit of newly graveled land known to some as the BP compound. Ringed with barbed wire and chain-link fencing, it's tightly restricted by police and private security guards. This is what they report. Well, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services set up the facility on May 31st, and according to a press release, the medical unit is staffed by a medical team from the HHS National Disaster Medical System, a doctor, two nurses, two emergency medical technician paramedics, and a pharmacist. They should probably have added to that a spinmeister and a publicist. For over two weeks, Desmore and Bowser attempted uh, to get a general sense of how many people were being treated there, who they were and what illnesses they had. It was either access denied when they tried or no response at all. So they're being stonewalled by the meds. When Desimore finally got to speak to Ron Berger, the medical unit operations chief of the HHS's National Disaster Medical System, she was told that the facility had been treating responders and could not or, or would not confirm or deny that any area residents had been treated there or turned away. Concerns over public health in the Gulf region run high. Experts in the field have called for a coordinated approach to monitoring and researching affected populations. And residents of the region continue to worry about the near-term effects of the cleanup effort and the long-term health impact the oil spill will have on their seafood. Well, they have good reason to be concerned. One of the first things BP did after oil started gushing into the Gulf was to spray more than 1.1 million gallons of a dispersant with the optimistic name Core Exit onto the oil. I wonder who thought up that one, Core Exit. Then BP hired Louisiana fishermen and others to help with cleanup and containment operations. About two weeks later, over 70 workers fell sick, complaining of irritated throats, coughing, shortness of breath, and nausea. Seven workers were hospitalized on May 26. Workers were engaged in a variety of different tasks in different places when they got sick, breaking up oil sheen, doing offshore work, burning oil, and deploying boom. BP officials speculated that their illnesses were due to food poisoning. Well, that's an ironic lie, considering that they are in the process of poisoning the region's food, or they said it's other unrelated reasons. 
Like what? existential angst or just plain gold bricking or hypochondria or, you know, whatever. Why don't they just get Tony Hayward off his yacht named Bob and down there to take these people's temperatures? Well, Pete, what's going on in the 49th state? I mean, just right above Alaska there. We've got Arizona. Some new news. Oh, the the where the painted wingnut desert, yes, right? Yes, yes. Well, as part of their new immigration law, you know, they, they've released an hour-long training video to be shown to law enforcement officers to train them how not to engage in racial profiling. First chapter of the video was called racial profiling. Oh, well, good. And focuses on how to defend yourself against the inevitable charges of racial profiling from critics of the new law. They know it's coming, man. They can feel it coming. Yeah, yeah. Quote, frankly, he says, I'm being frank now, Mm -hmm. critics of this law believe that Arizona officers cannot be trusted with this kind of authority. Now, where, where would they think that? Where do they get that idea, right? They doubt your professionalism. They doubt your integrity. And they doubt your ethics, said Lyle Mann, the executive director of the Arizona Peace Officers Standards and Training Board. This doubt is unfair and unearned. It will soon be earned. Excuse Just me. Give they, enough time. They, aren't these the same police that have been around for the last hundred years? I'm sorry. Yeah. It's earned. It's Come earned. On. They've Come earned. On. They should get badges. Rac- in LA. Racial they profiling. In They've earned this. Florida, yeah. Texas, come on, Arizona. Let's the go. new law requires law enforcement officers, as we know, to demand the immigration papers of anyone they have a reasonable suspicion is in the country illegal. The law only applies when officers stop someone suspected of breaking a different law, i.e. breaking laws like dressing like a Mexican, that'll do it, yeah, yeah, or yeah. lining up for work, yeah, that'll do it. or being brown at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm, but, but that's mm-hmm. not related drive, to be- driving an old car. Oh, yes, driving an old car, having too many children, or yes. at least appearing to have. Too or children. too many children in the back of your car or truck. That's that'll right. get you in real big trouble. Well, speaking mm-hmm. any foreign language, but not speaking Swedish. You know, if Jan Janssen goes on, yeah, yeah, talking like Jan Janssen, they're not going to stop yeah, it. What if Jan Janssen goes out there and talks like, you know, somebody from Venezuela? Yeah. Why don't you want to hear, give me a Swede speaking like he's from Venezuela. That's going to be tough. It's a great challenge. I got that part of it. Yes, you do. You hear me like great. Okay. All right. So he says, this is the guy, the policeman again. He's really weird. We're going to be accused of racial profiling no matter what we do. Okay. This is the official film. He says Tucson police chief Robert Vialasenor. Yes, you are and will be right most of the time. The best thing we can do is to document thoroughly where we develop our reasonable suspicion and probable cause, he says, and make sure those reasons would hold even if the suspect is not in a protected class. Excuse me, Captain, uh, as a burned out taillight, does that work for this? I'll have to find out if the person in that car is part of the protected class. Is he an average Joe citizen? If those factors still hold up, officer, then you're on firm ground. But the question is, what do we mean by a protective class? Who are they? What are they being protected from? Certainly not from the local police. No, it starts with them. Yeah, no, protected okay. class. All now right. Here's the right. problem. He says, okay. Racial profiling is a step on the slippery slope of career and public trust destruction. He says, if it is done, the reports then must be falsified to cover it up. Internal affairs statements might have to be fabricated. Testimony at trial perjured. Is this some sort of a how-to on covering up racial profiling? Of course, it's a bad idea. No, you know, stop. No, no one likes stopping people, uh, for example, who look like employers on the street and asking them if they're hiring the undocumented. Well, man, do you remember when they used to stop you on the street for looking like a hippie, man? I mean, that happened to me all the time, man. I just, uh, you got long hair and you look like a hippie and have you got any identification? And I didn't have any identification because I was stoned at the time and I just didn't didn't know at all. That was a long time ago. Poor Mexicans. Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer of the First Second Amendment Church of Science Fiction. Well, dear friends, not so long ago... A believer came to me and say thank you for that and asked me, what age will I be in heaven? And I pondered that question and considered how the five justices of the apocalypse might decide. 
and it came down to me from that great court that there will be no old folks in heaven. No, sir. No, sir. And say thank you for that. And I told my parishioner, when you meet your forebears, friends, and relations in that fully loaded paradise to come, know that it's in the Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's only a sure thing if you look your best. So, as ye see yourself, so shall ye be. So when you get there, don't ask the ladies about nipping and tucking or why all the men got the pecs they always wanted. It's their right as Americans in paradise. And say thank you, thank you for that. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer saying, send for my free I'm Afraid Of bumper stickers. You got three choices, illegal aliens, real aliens, and arms control. Send for one or more today to P.O. Box 5 Against 4, Arroyo Mio, Arizona. Remember, your donation helps the fight. I'm on the phone with Mike Backus, who's down in Los Angeles. And Mike, amongst many other things, is on the board of directors of Cornerstone Research Collective, a state-of-the-art medical marijuana dispensary down there in L.A. How you doing, Mike? I'm well, Peter. How are you? Well, I'm very glad to hear that. I haven't seen you in a while, and I miss you. And I, I will be down into L.A. later in this month, and we can get together. But what I want to talk about, we're going to do a, a couple of interviews here. Um, first one, I want to find out about what's going on with the medical marijuana initiative there in California. We have one up here also in Washington. There's one in Oregon. But I think you guys are the bellwether. What's going on? What's it all about? And, well, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it's a, it's a tax and regulate initiative. That's what they're calling it. And it's an attempt to really get the first um, full-scale legalization bill passed um, by a popular referendum. Um, it started out with about 49% of the uh, polled voters that intend to show up supporting it. Um, there's a little concern that it might lose a little speed uh, as we get closer to November. Yep. Um, that happens often with uh, these kind of initiatives. Um, however, uh, uh, Sheriff Lee Baca, who's the L.A. County Sheriff, uh, he came to a forum um, about 10 days ago, and he represented the anti-side yep. and uh, had a true Dr. Strangelove moment um, where he, um, he got up and said that the reason that he was opposed to the legalization of marijuana is that he felt it polluted the divinity of the human mind. What? Yeah. I, I, I literally, it was one of those things, and what did it do to your bodily essences, pal? Exactly. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty wild. And if that was the best shot from the antis uh, camp, um, I think this thing may be cruising to a win in the fall. Um, the, the big concern is whether or not um, it makes any difference. Because? And the reason, yeah. and the reason for that is, is that... Um, United States is signatory to the single convention on narcotic drugs yep. that they signed initially in 1961, then renewed in 74 and 88. And that makes it illegal for any province or state of any signatory nation to legalize a Schedule One substance like marijuana. Right, right. And it is a so, Schedule One. You know, they made it just as dangerous as heroin, cocaine, belladonna, and strychnine, whatever it is. It's, it's top, it's, you know, it's, it's big league bad as far as they're concerned. Exactly. And so, and so the thing is, is that what it may do is it may stop this kind of silly drug war on marijuana, which, uh, honestly, I mean, I don't think there's anyone um, who's not directly making money from the drug war who thinks that it's any kind of success. Um, so what I'm hoping is, if it doesn't really succeed in legalizing it, at least it'll stop people from being, you know, put in jail for it, uh, for a plant that we've been using for 5,000 years. Well, Mike, uh, Obama, a few months ago, told the DEA, busting medical marijuana facilities is the bottom priority. 
He said that specifically. He said you've got a lot more important things to do. So the heat may not be on, particularly if if the whole West Coast, uh, you know, legalizes marijuana on a state level. It's it's definitely sending a huge message. I mean, we're a lot of Democratic electors if you think about it. You know. Yeah, and and I mean, I mean, I think that I mean, I I think that the the drug war is running out of steam. I mean, when you've got a county sheriff basically, you know, <laughs> talking about polluting the divinity of the human mind as being the primary argument for keeping marijuana illegal, and you know, the the problem with keeping marijuana illegal is a lot of people have tried marijuana, and and they know that it's a it's a it's a non toxic plant. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't it shouldn't be used with intelligence and respect. But uh, in comparison to a lot of plants that our society has made legal, um, it's, uh, it's pretty innocuous. So my hope is, is that uh, the drug war is finally running out of speed. Well, you know, it, one of the things that, that will make it less and less toxic is the ability to know that when you go into a medical marijuana dispensing clinic that you're getting the real thing and that it's pure. And in our next interview, we're going to talk about some of the signal work that you're doing to make that happen. Thank you, Mike Backus. We'll be back with you soon. It's almost over, Jimmy, and we're back where it all began. We're here in No Man's Park, the tiny square of weeds where Ducktown was born. With me here in this field are field reporters, Peter Protector, How do you do? Charles Garage, Benson. and the little voice in my ear, our producer, Thatch Switcher. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, you're the okay. oldest, Charles. Kick it off. Well, from here, Ed, I think the big story is visualization. Just look at this sodden postage stamp of ground. Over there, you know, originally we had a few merchants, some settlers, some pilgrims, some trappers, some soldiers. They all had buckles on their shoes, and uh, these soldiers would have all been in armor. Just folks. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, over here, over there. there were uh, some Indians, uh, Mohawks, Buttes, and uh, wraparounds, all dressed up and looking like courier and eyes. Mm, guardians, guardians of this oh, sacred land. Sacred, excuse me. And in between, <laughs> this sumptuous feast, untouched as yet by hand of man. Mm, I like some of that. <laughs> well, the leader of the white man spoke. Let's whop them Indians! Mm, he said. The Indians, of course, uh, had nothing to say. And so, of course, they said uh, nothing. <laughs> well, I think we can agree that was a typical scene, uh, gentlemen, one which uh, was to be repeated thousands of times. In the thousands of times to come. Uh, except... The first one was different. Yes. Well, well, why did the first one have to be different? No, here's the thing. It didn't seem any different at first. No, 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 no. You see, uh, one of the soldiers walked over to one of the Indians, and he uh, throttled him like, like this. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, old man. Well, uh, you can bet that that made the white folks in the buckled shoes as proud as punch. Manifest destiny! the captain of the ship. That Indian is good and dead, said the minister's wife. A dead Indian is good, cleverly rejoined the captain of the dragoons. The only good engine is a dead engine, said a little boy. <laughs> and they all applauded. <laughs> and you know they were about to let the little boy eat the Indian's heart. Mm, yum, yum. <laughs> when someone, I think it was the minister, reminded them that they were all Christians. And eating the heart of an Indian isn't really something Christ would do. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Oh, well, the Indian yeah. didn't say anything because... Of course. He was dead. Good heavens! Exclaimed the chief of the Indians. These people not friendly. Hmm, depend on what you mean by friendly. Said the medicine man. Depend on what you mean by people. Said the chief. <clears throat> and he shot an arrow at the soldier which bounced off Take the soldier's that. armor. Exclaimed the minister's wife, and she raised her buckly musket. Said the musket, and a couple of Indians fell dead, clutching their intestines. Which spilled out on this ground. Well, folks, this really got things going. There was a lot of shooting and dodging behind trees and skulking and so on. The Indians killed a few settlers. And these settlers killed a lot of And the feast was still untouched, except for those musket holes. Yes. And it looked like democracy was being made safe for America. When? All of a sudden, gentlemen, a very strange and unprecedented thing happened. What happened was, and you know this uh, does sound a little strange. <laughs> yes. Well, what happened was... Well, all the white people turned into black people. <laughs> like that. Now, you may think this amazed and befuddled the Indians. Oh, not so. All the Indians turned into Chinese. <laughs> This was quite a turn of events. Then, folks, a funny thing happened. All the settlers took off their buckles and the girdles and started dancing and uh, painting each other and 
And a few days later, someone... Uh, we think it was the minister. ...said... What about this war we was a-having? Well, wait, wait a minute. What was we fighting about? I think we was going to take their land. Oh, that's unthinkable. And besides, what do you mean, their land? Hey, I dig it. It's no man's land. Ah, yes. Well, you see, after only a short hesitation, the black people and the yellow people got together socially. And a little hanky-panky took place amongst the younger folk. <laughs> and everything got sort of blended together. Yes. Till one day they all looked around and there was... Nothing but... Indians. That's right, folks. Absolutely nothing but... Indians. You see? And here comes the headline. The definition of an Indian is... White man. Who becomes a black man. Who becomes a yellow man. Who becomes a white man. Who becomes a black man. Who becomes a yellow man. Well, some may say that's an oversimplification. Well, it is an oversimplification. Yes, I agree. But from here today, it looks to us like it's better than killing people. Doesn't it? Don't you think? I'd agree. Oh, yes, I, I, think I don't so. think we should kill anyone. Should we wrap no, this? No, no, I agree. Let's get out of the rain. <clears throat> oh, yeah, that's a very good idea. Good program. I'm not a dog. Very good show. Good show, man. I think you should enjoy it. Can we have a playback? What do we do again? Well, this is the end of one rotation of Oz, but just like Petraeus, we're going to be sent back from another. We're there, you know, every day. But before we leave the field of battle or whatever, let's tangulate us a bit. Yeah, this isn't one of their battle poems. You know, these Tang poets were were really sad about the wars that were going on around them. But this is one called Indulgence. Mm. Absorbed in my wine, I didn't notice the twilight. My clothes were covered with fallen petals. Drunk, I rose up and trailed the moon in the quiet creek. Birds gone, people few. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Lipo, he loved his uh, he loved his evening cup. Yeah, and we love our Radio Free Oz, and we love our Oz team that makes it all possible. I'm Peter Bergman, your host. My co-host, David Osman. Phil Fountain makes it beautiful. Tom Gedrillo keeps the website going. Chaz Glass keeps us financially fine. Dave Maloney does the wonderful recording. Bill McIntyre produces it. And Scott Wilde keeps us in touch with the world of social media. Catch you on the other side.